If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28, we were there this morning. I believe it's page 270 of your pew Bibles. Um, what we'll do is we'll read verse 7 to 25. I know we read the chapter as a whole this morning, but to save a little bit of time, we'll, we left off at of verse 7, so we'll pick up at verse 8 and go to, to the end. And my goal is not to answer every question you have about this passage. Okay? Any questions you have... Um, Someone else is more willing to give you their opinion. That's one thing I've learned in election year. Um, so uh, with that, if you will, politely stand with me in reverence of God's word. <laughs> oh, just love it. Thank you guys for having such a good sense of humor. My goodness. Um, starting in verse 8, the writer of 1 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Saul disguised himself and pawned on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by spirit, and bring up for whomever I shall name for you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. The woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up. He is wrapped in a robe. Saul knew that it was Samuel. He bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answered me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? And the Lord has done, done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. And Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There's no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul. And when he saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will, I will not eat. But his servants, together the woman, urged him. He listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in, in, in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread for it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate then they rose and went away that night. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, thank you for, again, your, your love and mercy that, that you have given us your word. May we be faithful to a proper interpretation and application of it. In order to do so, Lord, we ask you would open our hearts and our mind and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet. Your word would transform us and will change us to be more like Jesus. Lord, this is a difficult text for, for many reasons. May we be found faithful to it and continue to return to it as it is the inspired word of God. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I was 18, I almost died in a car wreck. Uh, I, I worked in Florence, Kentucky, 
and uh, worked at a Christian bookstore. And uh, the way we would come come get home was we would take 75 to 71 and cut through Glencoe, and uh, if that means anything to you, and come home. That was the quickest way home. The problem is, is that on this particular Saturday night, uh, there was a race at Speedway. And it was always a, a rule of thumb that, that if you can avoid Sparta and Glencoe whenever there's, there's a race, uh, then do so. So uh, instead of taking 75 and 71, go through Glencoe, we took 75 all the way to Dry Ridge and cut through 22. The problem with 22 is that it is a country road. It's very curvy, up and downhill because there's no flat land in Owen or Grant County. And, and uh, um, uh, it was there I had my wreck. Now, to be fair, I wasn't speeding. I wasn't going over the speed limit. Probably took the curve faster than I should have. Remember, I was 18, young and dumb, right, 18-year-olds? And, um, but, but on this particular day, it was very rainy. And, and I remember this, coming down this curve, and, and I, again, I wasn't speeding, but with my familiarity of, of the road, I was probably still going too fast. So I wasn't going 75 or anything like that. It was under 55 miles an hour. Uh, but the problem with this, this curve is, is that it, it's a standard curve, but then uh, about halfway or more into it, it takes a sharper curve in the middle of it. And it was at that point when I hit uh, a spot of water or something and I lost traction in my car. And as a result, I began to spin out of control, nearly hit the front deck of a house and almost ran into the house itself, bypassed it by God's grace. And I mean it. And I landed in a ditch uh, on a tree that had stopped me. I wasn't hurt. I wasn't scratched. I wasn't bruised. I was shocked and scared, frankly. I'd never really been in anything like, like this. And I eventually got some help. We didn't have cell phones back then and whatnot. In fact, the, the tree I landed on, it was, it was the... the I called it a ditch, really more of a cliff. On the other end of that cliff sat a trailer. Had that tree, those trees not been there, I would have gone off the cliff and into the house and certainly would have, would have died. The car was completely totaled, never to be used again, would later be towed away. And what an what a eye-opening experience something like that is. To, to, to be careening off the road, to be heading towards uncertainty and perhaps even death or damage itself without being able to control it. That was a scary moment. Perhaps you've been in a moment like that where, where nothing you do is going to protect you. Nothing you do is going to keep from something happening to you. You have lost complete control. And this morning we saw in the first seven verses, that is where Saul finds himself. He is quickly going as fast as he can right towards that cliff. And if he doesn't hit the brakes now, it will be too late for him. And as we discover, starting in verse 8, Saul doesn't hit the brakes. Instead, he accelerates even faster, leading to his own death. His desperation, as a result, has consequences. So if the first seven verses are all about the symptoms of Saul's desperation and his despair and, and his, his compromise and his disobedience. Verses 8 through 25 is the consequences of such Disobedience. In fact, that's where we begin. In verses 8 to 11, we see the disobedience of Saul. Now, given the silence of God, we talked about this morning, Saul uh, makes a very dangerous decision. It's very clear there in verse 7 that he, he, he requests a, 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 a medium. Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and acquire of her. Now, now, just for the sake of terms, let us be clear what the Bible means by different things. First of all, a medium is someone who consults the dead. A necromancer mentioned in this text is one that speaks on behalf 
of the dead or the dead speak through them. Okay, that is the difference. This woman might be a medium, but she essentially becomes a necromancer as the story unfolds. Now, we need, need to be reminded that seeking out uh, necromancers and mediums and witches and whatnot uh, was not only forbidden, we saw that this morning, but to do so was a severe act of disobedience. Let me give you a few examples from, from Scripture. In, in Leviticus 20, says, I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums and spiritists to, to prostitute themselves by following them, and I will cut them off from their people. One of the great evils of King Manasseh, king of, of the northern tribes of Israel, is that he made images of worship from, from, the, from the Canaanites and whatnot. He also, uh, part of worship was he consulted with mediums, etc. So we see in 2 Kings 21, he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to, that's supposed to be, anger. The same parallel passage is found in 2 Chronicles 33. He burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnon and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancer. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Now, if you know your Bible, particularly your New Testament, that location, the valley of the son of Hinnon, may seem familiar to you. In, the, in Jesus' time, outside Jerusalem, there was a place uh, called the Valley of Hinnon. This is what's being described here. We know it by the Greek term Gehenna. And it was a vivid reminder. It was a, a trash heap. It was in constantly uh, uh, being burned. It was a, a metaphor, a picture, if you will, for Jesus to describe uh, eternal damnation. But it's Genesis is here with Manasseh who, who offered his own sons, uh, committing infanticide with his own children in false worship and the consulting of of uh, mediums and necromancers. Now, what marked Josiah's reforms uh, in uh, uh, Judea was, uh, I believe, uh, Israel actually, was the removal of both pagan altars, the high places and whatnot, and the outlawing and the expulsion of witchcraft. So we get in 2 Kings 23, this is right after Manasseh. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And so Josiah is praised by outlawing these practices. Manasseh is universally condemned for legalizing it and, and participating in it. But what is most striking is how quickly such a medium is discovered. Remember what verse 3 said. Verse 3 said, Saul had outlawed this, right? He, he, he even gave out the pens when he passed the legislation, right? It was passed by the House and the Senate. It was confirmed by the, the judiciary. This is the law of the land. And notice how easily it was to find one. I mean, they probably didn't have to Google it. It was so easy. Right? The, you know, it's very clear. It is outlawed. And then Saul says, you know what? What I need is someone to speak to Samuel for me. Does anyone know any witches out there? Anyone know any mediums out there? And someone says, oh, yeah, a good buddy of mine. Right? I, I know someone. Lives kind of back in an old shack out in the middle of the woods. Kind of creepy. But, hey, it'll work for you. It is amazing how quickly this happens. It is easy to publicly dismiss evil. But at the same time, still privately flirt with it. And the history of man really, really is that, including with this very issue right here. 
I know we tend to think this is an, this is an outlier situation. This, this really illustrates how far Saul has gone, and that is true. But let us not misunderstand that this is still a common issue today. Can I give you just two examples in the history of America, particularly in presidential politics? You know my, my affection for, for the presidents, even uh, the bad ones. Let me give you two examples. The first was during the, the, uh, uh, the years of the Civil War. Both Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln hosted seances in the White House um, after the death of their son. They actually had lost two sons, and really only one of their sons survived his parents. And that son, his name is leaving me, I think his name was Robert, I think he witnessed three presidential assassins in his life, including that of his father. That's neither here nor there. In fact, Mary Todd hosted as many eight seances in the White House. She once remarked to her half-sister that, quote, Willie, that is their son, lives. He comes to me every night and stands at the foot of the bed with the same sweet, adorable smile that he always has had. He doesn't always come alone. Little Eddie, her, her son that perished at the age of four, is sometimes with him. But it isn't just Mary Todd Lincoln whose depression led her down this path of desperation. We could look at someone more recently, someone like Nancy Reagan. Notice these are two conservative presidents here. Not just two libs who are just trying to take over the country. These are two conservatives. As you may recall, after the assassination tip on President Reagan's life, uh, uh, First Lady Nancy Reagan was reached out by an astrologist who said, I could have predicted what was going to happen to your husband. And as a result, she had full access to the White House, and, and Nancy would go out of her way to change her husband's traveling plans based on the advice of this astrologist. This isn't new. This isn't unique, nor is this ancient. We still struggle with this sort of stuff. In our moments of fear and desperation and panic, it is amazing how publicly we'll say one thing, but privately we'll do another so what Saul does in verse 8 is he travels by night in disguise to meet with this woman. It is quite striking, isn't it? He removes his royal uh, uh, covering, right? The robe and everything else. Remember, David had cut the edge of the robe. He removes the, any sign of, of monarchy from him, uh, and, and he travels by night because this, that is when these things happen. For reasons I've never quite understood, but, uh, you, you know, this, this is what you do. You go at night to speak to someone like that. But this is the way of disobedience, isn't it? Saul assumes that if no one catches him, if no one suspects him, if no one sees him, then it's not wrong. No one else needs to know. Saul's desperation moves him to a secret disobedience. And you can't help but pause and ask how many of us do the same thing even today. Maybe you want to be married and have children so bad you'll compromise your value and your values in favor of a shortcut. Maybe you want that job, a career advancement so bad, you'll do whatever it takes to achieve your goals. Besides, no one needs to know. Maybe you're so angry, so bitter, that an anonymous message will just make you feel better. No one needs to know. No one needs to know. How easy it is for desperation to stir disobedience. Now, the medium, strikingly, is hesitant to help. In fact, in the story, Saul is on the front line of disobedience, and it is the necromancer who is the... Uh, more righteous person, for lack of better phrasing, right? I mean, I mean, later we'll see uh, Saul just like, I don't want to eat. And she's like, I just cooked you a burger. You're going to eat, right? This is good for you, right? And, and it is Saul like, hey, go get me a, a medium, if you will. And the medium comes and says, uh, I think that's a wrong thing to do. It's striking the way the story is, is written. 
She's hesitant to, to help because she knows her vocation is outlawed. Yet Saul assures her she will not be punished. Why? He says, as the Lord lives. That's striking language, isn't it? The man rejected by God now claims to speak for him. Isn't that striking? So now we have Saul, who is not only disobedient, he is making a victim's out of others. We saw this with David multiple times already, haven't we? That when we are disobedient, when we are in sin, you cannot privatize that. It will affect and harm other people. And here we see Saul doing precisely that. If he can benefit from the sin of others, he will do so for himself. It isn't just the disobedience of Saul we see here. It's the denouncements of Samuel that we see here. We come now to everyone's favorite part of this story. Chances are, before we read this story, you didn't even know Saul went through depression, did you? Right? Because you only care about the witch, right? <laughs> Tell me about that witch. Well, I get that. Um, well, let's start here. To say this creates some exegetical conundrums, or whatever the term is, I don't know how to say it in Owen County English, is an understatement. There's a lot of issues with this passage, and I'm not going to be able to answer all of them for you. I can make something up if you'd like. Uh, and then I'll make a lot of money in politics doing that. But uh, here, the big question is, is this really Samuel or not? Is this, is this really what's going on? I mean, did she really pull it off? I mean, that's what we want to know. Let me give you three responses to that, and we'll talk about each of these. The first option is, yeah, this is Samuel. This here is Samuel. This is your boy Sam, right? He was minding his own business. Right? Sort of like Lazarus. Can you imagine me Lazarus, right? Hanging out with, with God Almighty and he hears Lazarus come forth. He's, he's, like, he's like, no, <laughs> I don't want to go back there. I mean, the cooking ain't nothing like it is up here. Uh, same thing with Samuel. Is that what happened here? Now, let us be clear that this is the view of the medium, right? It's very clear in the text. She says, verse 13, I see a God coming up out of the, the earth. Now, now, let's pause there. Uh, your translation may read something different as my translation. ESV says, I see a God coming up out of the earth. The Hebrew word here is Elohim. It's the same word used in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, uh, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It is the word for God. Yet it is a broad enough term that it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean Yahweh. Okay? It is actually a word that is always in the plural, interesting enough, when it's written as Elohim. But nevertheless, uh, is, is, is she describing Samuel as a divine being? Uh, or is it something else? This is why our translations are all over the map. Let me give you a few examples, and I'll give you a couple dozen more. Uh, the NIV says, uh, um, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. By the way, you can see the difference between uh, uh, thought-for-thought translation like the NIV and word-for-word -word translations like the ESV that I use, um, or what about uh, the NASB, uh, where she says, I see a divine being coming up out of this. You see the, the influence of Elohim, but with the clarity for, for English readers, what is not being communicated and what is being communicated. That's the challenge here. Uh, the Wycliffe, remember Wycliffe is the earliest English translation of the Bible from the 14th century, I believe. It's coming from Latin as opposed to Hebrew, but still the earliest. John Wycliffe describes it as, uh, I saw God's ascending from the earth. That word ascending is interesting because think about it. God descends to the earth. Wycliffe is, as this text shows, uh, was coming up from Sheol, from, from the ground, from the grave. 
the King James, right? The Bible, of course. Um, uh, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. You see the influence of Wycliffe later, the Tyndale Matthews Bible. Uh, the New King James, right? So this is King James for, for uh, uh, people with cell phones, I guess. It says, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. Now notice, it went from gods to spirit. Now, um, what about the uh, Christian Standard Bible, the Baptist Bible? Of course, it has to be inspired, of course. Uh, it says, I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, much more generic in its uh, translation. Then there's the net, one of my favorite translations. Uh, it says, I have seen one like a God coming up from the ground, a more literal translation. So what is it? Well, uh, some uh, interpret this to mean uh, a judge, right? Remember, Samuel is prophet, but he's the last of the judges. So some see it in that light too. Now, we're not going to be able to solve all of these issues here. But what we do need to see is that this medium seems to experience something she's never experienced before. From her perspective, this really is Samuel. This really is someone that, that, that once lived and died and is now hanging out again, speaking, and is coming out of Sheol. From her perspective, she sees this. No wonder then that someone who, who is frankly paganistic in their theology interprets this in a Canaanite way as Elohim, as the gods, as a divine being or whatever it might be. But this we also notice here, this is the view of Saul. Saul is not trembling because it's not Samuel. He is trembling because it is Samuel. Saul is scared to death. In fact, verse 14, she describes him as an old man coming up who is wrapped in, in, in a robe. You may remember, we've talked about this briefly when we looked at the ripping of, of Saul's robe. Samuel had a robe that you may recall that Saul had had ripped off. And it was, and in that, Samuel condemned Saul, saying that your kingdom will come crashing down. Someone will take your throne. So when he hears of an old man in a robe, he immediately knows it is Samuel. He responds accordingly. And you see it there, verse 14, Saul knew that it was Samuel. So what, what I like to say is that uh, in, when it comes to this text, again, if, we're, if all we have is this Bible passage and nothing else in the Bible, just this, we could and easily probably should conclude this is indeed Samuel. Because the characters of the narrative, we only have two, uh, come to that conclusion. This is really Sam of Oat. There's another view that we can look at here, and it's the opposite. It ain't Samuel. It ain't Samuel. If this is actually Samuel, this is why we should read the Bible theologically. Because if it is Samuel, this does open a can of worms. It opens a, a number of theological problems. And so on the one hand, I think, I think the fact that it's Samuel is, is exegetically correct. But, the, but is it theologically correct? Remember that the Bible informs our theology, but often you need a good theology to inform your Bible, to understand what it is the Bible is saying and what it means. And so if you reject that this is Samuel, and I think that is a reasonable conclusion, right? I, I am indifferent, well, not indifferent, but I am, I am open to, to some of these. Um, uh, and, and the reason is, is because of those problems. But, but then you have to explain who is this cat speaking through the necromancer to uh, Saul. And there's a couple options. One would be, uh, this is what I grew up with in the church I grew up, is that this is a demonic being of some sort. 
It is not unusual, particularly in the New Testament, to see examples of this. The demons do speak to Jesus. They're scared to death of Jesus. It's striking. Here, Saul is the one afraid of the Spirit. In the Gospels, it is the spirits who are afraid of Jesus. And so it wouldn't be necessarily unexpected to come to this conclusion. After all, this is demonic behavior. This is something the Bible is clear you don't mess with. You shouldn't mess with at all. Well, another option, if it's not a demon, it could just be a being, to use a generic term, sent by God. Scripture is clear that angelic beings uh, appear as human. Oftentimes, they're confused as humans. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a great example of that. Right? Where people treat them as you would a human. Abraham and Sarah spoke to angels, and, and they, they approach them and treat them as you would uh, any other human. In John chapter 6, Jesus is described as a ghost by the disciples. Remember, it is dark at the, at the stormy sea, and what does they see in the distance? Light. Now, that's the whole point of that story. We, we, I've talked about it in our devotions. You can go back to our study of John 6 and, and the devotions if you want more on that. But to them, people don't walk on water. Right? Modern people who know what a light bulb is and germs, right? People don't do that. So they say, well, if a man can't walk on water, there is an explanation. It must be a ghost. Of course, they were wrong about that. But just because they, they thought they saw a specter doesn't mean that's what, exactly what it was. There's a third option if we rejected this as Samuel. And that is that this is trickery by some other means. The history of this sort of work is essentially Magic, if I can use the term. Like the sort of magic that you pay someone to, to say, um, pick a card, any card, right? Same sort of tricks involved. In fact, there's some historic precedent to this. Perhaps you've heard of these two cats. You recognize these two cats right here? Well, on your right, this handsome young fellow, is Harry Houdini. The guy on the left is Arthur Conan Doyle the author of the Sherlock Holmes novels. What is striking is that Arthur Doyle of Sherlock Holmes, because Sherlock Holmes, you know, he's an investigator, the writer of Sherlock Holmes got really into spiritualism. I believe he had lost his, his wife or something like that. Um, and he was convinced that Harry Houdini could not do his magic apart from um, being a spiritualist. So he tried to convince Harry Houdini that he was, in fact, in touch with the supernatural. And what Harry Houdini did, and they were close friends, as the picture indicates. In the 1920s, Harry Houdini dies in 1926. So he ends his life in this pursuit. He dedicates the rest of his life to disproving mediums and spiritualists and divinators. The reason is because he was appalled that anyone would use what we call magic, just, just trickery, to profit off the sorrow of hurting people. So what you would have, and you still get this, is people come in and they say, I need, like Mary Todd Lincoln, to see my little boy again. I just need to tell them I love them. And so they would hold hands and dim the lights and, and there would be all these tricks to get voices and lights to flicker and everything else. And Harry Houdini would, would, would expose these frauds to what they really were. In fact, he put a, um, uh, a prize, he offered a, a financial prize, a reward to any medium that could prove to him, apart from trickery, that they could reach the dead. Near the end of his life, he published a book with a, with a ghostwriter, no pun intended, um, right as that was coming to my mouth, I realized that. that 
The book was called A Magician Among the Mediums. In fact, before he died, Harry Houdini and his wife agreed that if Houdini found a way to communicate with her, they had a secret code. The secret code we now know is not much of a secret. Rosabelle Believe. Rosabelle was the title of their favorite song. I don't know where the Believe comes, back, comes into, but it's called Rosabelle Believe. So every year, his wife would have a seance in hopes of speaking to her husband. Ten years after that, so this would be in 1936, she quit doing it. And she, 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 she gave this reasoning, quote, Ten years is long enough to wait for any man. <laughs> there is wisdom in that. Ladies, <laughs> ten years is way too long for, for any man, right? <laughs> if he ain't committed in ten years, he ain't gonna, okay? <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know. Um, but, but, but that was the point, is to say that this was trickery by, by some other means. But there's a third option when it comes to, to the issue of Samuel here. And I hope you're not lost, because we do have, we're getting somewhere with all this. The third reason is because, though this is an important discussion, it is not the priority of the text. Now, both of those are important. This is important because the implications of your interpretation are immense. They are immense. If we were to talk about spiritual warfare, if we were to talk about spiritual beings, maybe talk about angels, demons, whatnot, then this text is very important to us. This is a conversation worth having. But our question, whenever we go verse by verse through the Bible, is not, what is the thing of this passage that interests me? But rather, why is it in the, in the Bible to begin with? What is it that the Spirit is showing us here that helps me and guides me to become more like Jesus? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. As interesting as this is, and it is important, it is not the primary concern of the text. That is one of the reasons why the text says, look, it's Samuel. Everyone thinks it's Samuel. Whether or not it's Samuel is not the question. Everyone believes it's Samuel. The medium believes it's Samuel. Saul believes it's Samuel. The issue isn't, do you believe it is Samuel? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But rather, what does it mean in light of the narrative itself? Samuel, if we'll use that term, essentially repeats everything he stated while he was alive now to Saul. And so what matters in the story is that Saul, not to mention the, the necromancer, believes it is Samuel because Samuel repeats himself. Everything he told Saul before, he tells him now. He tells him that the monarchical anointing on Saul has been removed. We've known that for quite a while. He explains to Saul that his throne will be taken from him and given to David, and that David will be the next king of Israel. But then he adds, within 24 hours, you're going to be down here with me. You will be in Sheol. You will be in the grave. Now, the Bible never explores the how of divination. It only condemns it. This is, did this woman have dark powers to conjure up the dead? I don't know. The Bible never clearly tells us so. But having turned to disobedience in his desperation, Saul is denounced as a rebel. That's the point we're to see here. Through Samuel, if we can use the term, whatever your interpretation is, judgment is announced against Saul one last time. Will he believe and repent? That's the question we have for Saul. 
And so we see there in verse 16, don't we? Samuel said, why then do you ask me since Yahweh has turned from you and become your enemy? And then in verse 19, it says, in fact, tomorrow you and your heirs, including Jonathan, Remember, Saul had David promise that you will protect my heirs. Here, Samuel, if we'll use the term, says they will be wiped out as well. And your throne will be given over to David. And remember what we said about chapter 27. Had David just been patient, he's a mere days away from the throne. But because of his compromise of disobedience, it will be a long time before he has control over all of Israel. This is judgment language. Can you tell me why? We to this day continue to believe that blessing comes from disobedience. Joy comes from rebellion. Freedom from sin. Whether or not this specter is literally Saul's beside the point. He affirms what Saul has already known but refuses to believe and repent and now stands in judgment and death. His disobedience leads him down a path of denouncement. And this text concludes with Saul in depression. And what a strange turn this is in the text. After being denounced by Samuel, he sinks into a deep depression. In fact, notice how Saul there in verse 20, who was afraid of the Philistines, is now afraid of of God, as he should be, Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him left. Striking, isn't it? He now realizes in judgment he should have feared God all along. The Philistines and other men is not his greatest threat. It is the judgment of God. You see, those who fear God have no need to fear men. Those who do not fear God will be gripped by the fear of men. And here is Saul at the point of starvation because of his depression, ready to die. And it manifests itself in starvation, doesn't it? Now, we need to be clear. Saul is not fasting here. He isn't fasting. Fasting in the Bible is always accompanied with prayer, and almost always associated with repentance. So, so, so when the church comes, when believers come, when Israel gather together, they've come out of judgment into repentance. What does they do to, to, to participate in this, this act of repentance? Is they cry out to God with fasting. You can't separate these ideas. Fasting is always associated with prayer and is often motivated by repentance. That is not what Saul does here. And, and, and what we see instead is the tragedy of chapters 27 and 28 is the absence of God. Saul never turns to God. Now, he's never mentioned in chapter 27 with David, as we've seen. But notice here, Saul, amid his depression, does not look up to heaven. Where does he look? Down to hell for his answers. No wonder then he continues to sink ever deeper into the depression of his soul. Now, most striking about this part of the text is the role that the witch plays in it. She's presented in this narrative as more righteous than Saul. That's the point. 
You have fallen when witches are closer to God than you are. Right? That's what you should see in the text. The hero of the story is the one speaking to dead people. But the one who's about to die is the one in far worse shape. She was hesitant to violate Saul's law early on, and now she tries to protect Saul from self-harm. My, how the mighty have fallen. Now, there is plenty of room here if we wanted to take the time to explore the importance of loving community amid depression. We've done that in a host of ways. When we looked at the story of Elijah, in fact, the uh, evening sermon that uh, uh, Scott Van Ness did at the association was on 1 Kings 19, where Elijah goes through depression. One of the things God gives Elijah is Elisha and reminds Elijah that there are, I believe, 700 others who have not bowed the knee to, 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 to Baal. And so what God shows Elijah at that point is that in the midst of your despair, in the midst of your melancholy, what you need is love from people who care for you. What you need is community. One of the great benefits of the church is that very gift. Come to Christ with your brokenness. And what does Christ give you? He gives you salvation for your soul, rest for, for your weariness, and he gives you a community to love and embrace you. There's good news in this. The problem is, is, is we're not really supposed to find a lot of good news in this because it is a witch who is doing this. That's as good as he can get at this point. That's how low he gets. The main point of this passage is to highlight the state of Saul's soul. He refuses repentance. He refuses redemption. He refuses hope. And all he can do is sink ever more into hopeless depression. What a tragedy this is. Desperado, we could ask. Why won't you come to your senses? See, the real problem in this text perhaps it's the most important thing about this text, is that Saul was trusting in the wrong resurrection. He is trusting in the wrong resurrection. Samuel is a deceased prophet, yet in his desperation, Saul turns to him. He turns to a grave that is still full, thinking somehow good news will come from that. But what good will the dead do for the living? There's no hope there, is there? And just pause for a minute and think how often we do the same today. I'll never forget, not too long ago, since we've been in Frankfurt, did a funeral for someone I didn't know. It's a tragic situation. As I've told you before, you walk to a funeral and you know there is a lot of lostness here. There's a lot of lostness in that funeral. I'm standing at the head of the casket and they're about to close it. You say your, your final goodbyes. And to watch a fiance with baby in hand try to climb into a coffin. To hear the tears of hopelessness. And prior to the funeral, the family comes to me. They don't know me from anyone else. And they say, Preacher, we have a poem we'd like for you to read. I've been in this, in this ministry long enough to, to know a few tricks, and this was one of them I had to use because I wasn't going to read it. I couldn't. It's just blasphemy, frankly. So I encourage that if this is something really the family wants, the family must read it. 
And they did. I give you the, the essence of the poem. It basically says, when I'm outside and I hear the wind blow, it's not the wind, it is you. When the rain falls on my face, it's not droplets of water, it is you in the rain. That is panentheism. And what hope is there in that? What hope is there in that? Maybe you, right now, at certain anniversaries, certain birthdays, certain holidays, find yourself alone before a dear, precious loved one, and all you want amidst your tears and words is for them to tell you it's okay. Are we any different in trusting in the wrong resurrection? Instead of looking up for a hope, we look down into the grave. Now, the point of this text is that we believe one who did indeed come back and speak, not as one still deceased, but one who conquered the grave. Somewhere in the Middle East, there is the dust of Samuel the prophet. And somewhere nearby, there is a tomb empty where Christ once laid. You tell me where our hope then lies. Is it not in Christ who died and removed its sting forever? Let's pray.